Chapter 2, Part 2 of A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham. Chapter 2, Part 2 The Apostolic Church. Of the Beloved Disciple we see no more in the acts of the apostles after the laying on of hands on the samaritan disciples of the date when he left jerusalem we have no information and for some years we have no record of his work a constant tradition tells us however that he took the oversight of the church in ephesus after the departure of st paul and we may well believe that he extended it to the other six churches which are addressed in the apocalypse of the fact of his banishment to Patmos there can be no doubt, though it is placed by different authorities at dates varying from the reign of Claudius to that of Domitian. St. John, with his apostolic authority, his purified warmth, his heavenly spirit, was placed by the providence of God in the very spot which most bubbled over with sects and heresies. In Asia he abode, says Irenaeus, until the days of Trajan, when he fell asleep in extreme old age in the midst of his disciples. The traditions respecting him show how deep an impression his holiness and his loathing of all that was vile had made upon those who had surrounded him. His life falls into two divisions. The Judaic period, before he left Palestine, ended probably with the banishment to Patmos and the writing of the Apocalypse, and the period in the midst of Jews and Gentiles, of error and heresy, in Ephesus and of other cities of Asia Minor. In the Apocalypse we see the Son of Thunder. Here indeed the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of Ezekiel and Daniel. Here too the Gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. If we see first the twelve tribes gathered round the throne of the Lamb, we see also the great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, singing praises to him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb. We do not find the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast giving prominence to the Lord's humanity, but rather the contrary. He is not merely the faithful and true witness, but the source of the creation of God. His name is called the Word of God, in the thirty years which perhaps intervened between the writing of the Apocalypse and that of the Gospel and Epistles, St. John had changed the scene of his life, and the Church itself, agitated by new movements, required a new setting forth of old truth. These later writings represent a more advanced stage of the Church's life than the letters of St. Paul. They set forth the very same view of a Gospel for mankind which is found in St. Paul, not now controversially, but positively, and with an authoritative calmness which is foreign to the eager style of the Apostle of the Gentiles. St. John does not dwell on the feeling of sin and the need of redemption with the same emphatic earnestness as St. Paul. He, rather, looks on the world as agitated by the great contest between light and darkness, the word of God and the power of evil, he appeals rather to the innate longing of man after righteousness and perfection he speaks less of faith in christ than of the perfect union in love which is to knit the church to god in christ 
as it knits Christ to God. Yet, so little contrariety is there in all this to the Pauline teaching, that certain passages in St. Paul's writings might well be adopted as mottoes for St. John's. All the several ways of the apostles meet in one end. The traditions that the apostles before their departure from Jerusalem divided the several portions of the world by lot among themselves, and that they formed the Apostles' Creed by each contributing a clause, do not seem to be older than the 4th or 5th century. Earlier accounts say that St. Thomas had Parthia for his province, St. Andrew, Scythia, the apocryphal acts of the latter, describing his martyrdom at Patras, were once supposed to be a genuine letter of the witnesses of his death and have certainly influenced some of the early liturgies. Bartholomew is said to have preached in India, and to have left there the gospel of St. Matthew in Hebrew characters. There he suffered martyrdom by beheading. Philip the Apostle was gathered to his rest in Hierapolis. Thaddeus is said to have been sent to Abgarus, king of Edessa. Many later legends have gathered round the Apostles, but in fact their labors are written, for the most part not in the pages of history but in the book of life the church is a community confessing the name of christ and pervaded by the spirit of christ it is of no age or clime but abiding and universal and develops according to its varying circumstances the organs which are necessary for its spiritual life preserving always the ordinances and gifts of its divine founder in the first age, as in all ages, it was through baptism that believers were admitted into that holy fellowship. This followed at once upon the profession of faith in Christ, and those who were so admitted are in scripture language the brethren, the saints, or holy ones, as being, like the Israelites of old, set apart and consecrated to the service of God. These saints are one in Christ, buried with Christ, that they may walk in newness of life. These are kings and priests to God, a royal priesthood, an adopted people. Not only individuals, but whole households were admitted at once to baptism into the name of Christ. Baptism was followed by the laying on of hands, that the converts might receive the Holy Ghost, the workings of which were in the apostolic age manifested in various special gifts, especially those of tongues and of prophecy. From that first day of the week, when Christ rose from the dead, Christians have eaten the bread and drunk from the cup, showing forth the Lord's death till he come. The Eucharistic celebration was connected in early times with a solemn meal, as in its first institution, a custom which at Corinth led to so much disorder that St. Paul had to rebuke sternly the irreverence of those who turned the Lord's Supper into a common and even riotous meal, not distinguishing the Lord's body. The kiss of love, or holy kiss, was given at these meetings. The Eucharist was, as it seems, at first celebrated in the midst of such a number as could meet in the upper room of some disciple, perhaps sometimes in the midst of a single household. Afterwards, as at Corinth, in assemblies of a somewhat more public kind, to which each brother brought his own contribution. In sickness, the brethren sent for the elders of the church, who prayed over them and anointed them with oil that they might recover. 
gifts of healing were among the special endowments of the Holy Spirit. As to the manner of conducting divine worship, whether at the celebration of the Eucharist or in other meetings, we know that prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving were the natural language of the early church. When the brethren came together, probably portions of the Old Testament, certainly apostolic letters, were publicly read, psalms were sung, and before long the Spirit added Christian hymns to the treasury of devotion. The word of exhortation was uttered, not only by the presbyters, but by other members of the community, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Each brother seems to have exercised the gift which the Spirit gave him for the good of the whole, subject only to the natural laws of fitness and order. One, the gift of prophecy, another the gift of tongues, another the interpretation of tongues. The most precious of these gifts was prophecy, the power of speaking under the influence of the Spirit for the building up of the church. As for the days on which assemblies for worship were held, the apostle taught with the utmost plainness that the Christian was not bound to esteem one day above another. Many, no doubt, of the Jewish Christians long continued to observe the seventh-day Sabbath, but the great festival of the church which was to show forth the life of the risen Lord has been from the beginning the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, which seems to have been observed by all Christians, whether they also hallowed the Sabbath or not. It is probable that a Passover was also celebrated in the church, as commemorating the great deliverance from sin and death by the resurrection of Christ. As to the usual hour of assembling, nothing can be determined, except that the administration of the Holy Communion accompanied or followed the evening meal. The Lord, before his ascension, gave to the apostles whom he had chosen the charge to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe the laws of Christ, adding the promise to be with them always, even unto the end of the world, to show his presence by signs following. To the apostles especially was it committed to commemorate the Lord by the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the cup according to his holy institution. To them was committed the power of forgiving sins. They were to be, as Christ's apostle expresses it, quote, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, close quote. instruments of Christ's working, channels of divine grace. While yet the church of Christ consisted of a single community in Jerusalem, all the gifts and offices of the Christian ministry were concentrated in the twelve apostles. They alone, as it seems, preached and taught. At their feet were laid the offerings which formed the support of the church, while as yet they had all things common. The charge of serving tables at the common meals, or distribution of food, becoming excessive, gave occasion to the first committing of a portion of the work of the ministry to others. The apostles desired to be relieved of this part of their burden, that they might give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. The body of the disciples accordingly chose seven, whom the apostles consecrated to their office by prayer with laying on of hands. These seven are commonly, and no doubt rightly, called the seven deacons. The giving of alms is so intimately connected with ghostly consolation, that we are not surprised to see St. Stephen, a leading teacher in Jerusalem, and St. Philip, 
preaching the gospel in Samaria. We soon find the diaconate in the Gentile churches also, a deaconess no doubt especially for ministrations to the half-secluded women of a Greek town was found in the church of Senecre. In the Philippian church, the bishops and deacons constitute apparently the whole recognized ministry. In the first epistle to Timothy, towards the close of his life, St. Paul gives very particular directions as to the qualifications both of deacons and deaconesses, in terms which imply the dignity and importance of the office. The office of deacon was, in the main, a new one, called forth by the needs of the Christian church. The office of presbyter, on the other hand, seems to have been already existing in the Jewish polity, in which each synagogue was governed by a body of elders. Hence, when presbyters came to be spoken of, there was not a word of explanation. It is taken for granted that the familiar word will suggest with sufficient accuracy the nature of the office. At Jerusalem, the presbyters receive the alms of the Gentile churches. They are associated with the apostles in the whole business of the Jerusalem conference. They are present when St. James receives St. Paul on his last visit to Jerusalem. And wherever Saints Paul and Barnabas formed a church, there they appointed presbyters. The body of presbyters was in all cases an essential and central part of the organization of a Christian community. The function of the presbyter was probably, in the first instance, like that of the Jewish elders, rather one of government than of labor in word and doctrine, though such labor brought double honor to those who exercised it. Yet it is required that the presbyter should be apt to teach, clinging stoutly to the faithful word that he may be able to exhort in the sound teaching and to confute gainsayers. A sufficient proof that teaching and exhortation were ordinarily expected of him. It has been assumed in the preceding sentence that the word bishop, a term only used in reference to Gentile churches and probably carrying with it Gentile associations, is in the New Testament absolutely synonymous with the word presbyter. This may perhaps be taken for granted, but it by no means follows that such a minister as was afterwards designated a bishop was not found in the apostolic age. St. Paul delegated to men like Timothy and Titus the same kind of power over particular churches which he himself exercised over all those of his own foundation. This is evidently the beginning of the office which in the second century was called by a special name derived from episkopos, and which still bears a similar appellation in almost every European tongue. St. James, the Lord's brother, clearly enjoyed in Jerusalem the local preeminence and authority which justified later writers in calling him Bishop of Jerusalem. And the apostolic authority of St. John was probably in his later days so far localized in Ephesus and its neighborhood that we may well call him Bishop of that city. We thus recognize in the apostolic age a threefold order, the general superintendence exercised by the apostles themselves, whether over several churches or a particular church, a power afterwards delegated to faithful men and in several communities, and the powers of administration and teaching committed to presbyters and deacons in each church. Of other offices or functions mentioned in the New Testament, that of the shepherds, presidents, and leaders, 
was seemingly identical with that of the presbyters. Helps and governments probably belonged to deacons and presbyters respectively. The work of teaching and evangelizing belonged to all the orders. Prophecy was not appropriated in the new more than in the old dispensation to any rank or dignity. The wonder-working power, gifts of healing, kinds of tongues, were gifts bestowed by the free grace of the Spirit on various members of the community for the building up and completion of the whole. But even in the apostolic age there were spots on the fair face of the church. First and foremost was the constant desire of Jewish converts to enforce on all Christians the observance of the Jewish law, to import into the Christian church the distinctions of meats and drinks, of new moons and sabbaths, which were to cease when they had subserved their proper end. And the evils of the old man in the Gentile churches were even more conspicuous and more fatal. The Greek spirit of partisanship, the tendency to look upon some higher knowledge or gnosis as the great end and aim of initiation into the mystery of Christ, the reluctance of idolaters to forsake the gay festivals which they had frequented in the heathen temples, their low standard of morality, especially as regards to intercourse of the sexes, in a word, the desire to compromise between Christ and demons, seemed as if it would drown Christianity into paganism. Even the cardinal doctrine of the resurrection of the dead was denied or obscured by some of the would-be wise. Oriental forms of asceticism and tendencies to the worship of hierarchies of supernatural beings intermediate between God and man seem early to have found entrance into the church. The epistle of St. Jude and the apocalypse of St. John reveal to us a time when deceivers were frequent and men ready to be deceived. St. John's insistence on the reality of the human body of Christ seems to indicate that the heresy which regarded it as unreal already existed. False Christs and false prophets were not wanting. One Docetheus in Samaria gave himself out to be the prophet whom Moses declared that the Lord would raise up unto his people, and preached the divinity and eternal obligation of the Mosaic law. Simon Magus came to be recognized as the power of God which is called great, and his subsequent history, however decorated with fable, shows that he was regarded by a sect as a kind of incarnation of the creative power of the divinity. Menander, too, seems to have represented himself as an incarnate deity, and to have persuaded his followers that he could confer upon them the gift of immortality. Nor are indications wanting that others also cried, Lo, here is Christ, and found some at least to go forth to them. The Lord foretold that tares should be mingled with the wheat in the field of the world, not to be separated by hasty hands. Yet he himself gave the precept that the offending and unrepentant brother must be excluded from the community. And this power it was necessary to exert in order to maintain spiritual life and sound doctrine. The evil deed and foul word, eat as doth a canker. The apostles or the brethren under their direction excluded from the communion of the church those who were guilty of gross immorality those who denied or deformed the faith, those who caused divisions among the brethren. Yet, exclusion from the society of the faithful 
was only resorted to in the last necessity, and the restoration of the offender was always earnestly desired. If one was overtaken in a transgression, the spiritual were to correct and reinstate him tenderly. Love and comfort were to be bestowed on the penitent. If men were judged, it was that they might not perish with the world. If one was delivered over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it was that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. In a word, the end of excommunication is never merely punishment, but the preservation of the church and the reformation of the offender. End of chapter 2